in a position where he was a key individual during the Civil War. The second one had to do with Clara Barton. And the way the story was, if I remember it correctly, says it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when I was 20-something. Um, Clara Barton working, bandaging up somebody and a young woman nurse aide next to her reminded her and spoke to her about an offense that somebody had really treated Clara very badly. And Clara just kind of ignored it and just kept on working. And the girl pressed a little harder, don't you remember that? And the way the history says it, Clara Barton turned to the young lady and said, I distinctly remember forgetting that. I distinctly remember forgetting that. Magnanimity, magnanimous. It comes from two Latin words, magnus, which means great, and animus, which means spirit. Magnanimous speaks of someone who has a lofty and generous spirit, someone who has a generous mind. And the dictionary in my word processor says this, it's a very generous or forgiving especially toward a rival or a less powerful person. Very generous or forgiving, especially toward a rival or a less powerful person. I've chosen the title for my message this morning because of where we are in the story of Abraham as we're going through the book of Genesis. We called him Abram because his name hasn't been changed yet. It will be in just a couple of chapters. We talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago about that season in his life where Abram thought it was necessary for survival during a great famine to move himself down to Egypt and take his family and everybody and everything with him. On entering Egypt, he made a pact with his wife that he'd already made when they left her to the Chaldees. When we come into a foreign land, We'll just tell them we're brother and sister because they'll see how beautiful you are and they'll kill me so that they can marry you. And I don't want to die that way. So, so it was a half-truth. They were half-brother and half-sister. Same father, different mother. But God talked to Pharaoh and let Pharaoh know that Abram was pulling the wool over his eyes and he almost committed a great crime against God and against Abram and against Sarah. So Pharaoh reprimands him and has him escorted back out of the country. His men took him to the border, and I can hear them saying, and don't come back. Abram returned to Bethel and Ai in between there to the altar that he had built when he first came into the land of Canaan. And something took place when he went back to that altar. There became a change, a beginning of a change in his heart. We, we talked about last week when Abram and Lot came back out of Egypt the Egyptians have given them so many riches that now they have so much stuff, so many flocks and herds, the two of them cannot be next to each other without the herdsmen fighting over who gets the pasture for their sheep and their cattle and their camels and their donkeys. And so Abram goes to Lot and said, our relationship is so important. I don't want to do anything to cause rift between you. So we need to separate. And so Abram takes... Lot to a high place, and they look out over the land, and he says to you, choose which way you want to go. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. And Lot saw the Jordan Valley that was green, lush, water flowing through it, and he said, I think I'll go that way. And he went. And the scripture said he pitched his eye towards Sodom, leaving Abram in the hill country of Canaan. Now, there's a considerable amount of time between chapter 13 and chapter 14 where we are today. We're going to read that he not only moved close 
to Sodom, but now living in it. A city absolutely wicked. Abram, we left him last week living in his tent, and he had moved towards Hebron, where he built an, another altar to the Lord. Genesis 14, we have the first war recorded in the Bible. Now, I won't say it's the first war that existed, but it's the first war that's recorded in the Bible. And it's recorded because of Abram's involvement, because Abram is part of the story of God, because he's the one that the Messiah is going to come through. So we begin talking about this war. Verse 1, chapter 14. There'll be a spelling test next week. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Caleb the Moor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Sodom. Bersa, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemur, king of Zebulun, and, and the king of Bela, that is Zorah. All these joined forces in the valley of Sedum, that is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Lomar, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So we have nine kings listed here. These kings would represent a city or a, a, what might be the equivalent of a small state where there were several little villages or cities. Um, it wasn't like the United States of America type thing. It wasn't even like Europe, but small feudal type kings, nine of them. Four of these eastern kings had formed an alliance and with brute force were forcing these other five kings to pay taxes to them and be subservient to them. For 12 years, they have lorded it over these kings and their people. But when year 13 comes around, somebody, one of these kings, developed enough backbone and talk to the other four and to say, we need to stop this. We need a, a rebellion. Someone came to the conclusion, like Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. We're going we're gonna to rebel. We're not doing this anymore. So the result of that is in verse 5, in the 14th year, Cadelmer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphium in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim, Zuzim in Ham, the Emmon in Shava, Karethium, and the Horites in their hill country of Sear, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishwat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Kalamar led the coalition of the four kings on a war path that was very similar to the path that Abram had taken from Ur of the Chaldees. When they went west along the Euphrates rivers to Carchemish, and, and then when they got there, they turned south and went through Damascus down to Canaan, the Transjordan. The battle plan was to conquest to conquer the Transjordan, and then the Sinai Peninsula on the way to Egypt, then double back to deal with these five rebellious kings. On the way, we just read all these other places that they destroyed, they annihilated. The first one, the, the Rephium, those are people who were, were giants. They were much taller, much bigger than other people in the world at that particular time. They, they destroyed cities, they killed people or took them captive. In recent years, recent history, a Palestinian archaeologist investigated the area thoroughly and concluded that every village in their path had been plundered and left in room. For hundreds of years, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, is what the archaeologist wrote unkempt, strewn with broken and shattered monuments on the ground. The four kings from the east, they came and they wiped out 
all the surrounding cities and kings around these five cities. So now these five cities are all on their own. They've got nobody to call on. Everybody around them has already been wiped out. So we come to verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zebulun, and the king of Bela, that is Zorah, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, and Caleb Morah, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Armaphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Five kings go to battle with their each individual army with confidence. We, we have the motivation to gain our freedom. This 12 years of subservience to these other guys, that there's enough. But it turns out they are no match for these armies that have come from the area that we now call Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. And as they fled, they fell into tar pits. Josephus called it the asphalt sea. And the, application, the implication is when they, when they fell into these pits that that's where they died. In these tar slime pits. Some have suggested they chose to fall into those pits and die that way rather than die by the sword or being bludgeoned to death by the enemy army. Verse 11 said this, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way way. It's a bit ironic. Lot had chosen to move towards Sodom because it looked like the path to material gain. He looked and he saw the Green Valley and he, he, and he moved that way because it looked to him like this is the way to have financial security for me and my family for the rest of our days to move towards that place that looks like prosperity. He thought it would be the place to sustain him. The next note, I noticed on your notes it's all mixed up, but it should say Lot had looked at Sodom, moved towards Sodom, and ended up living in Sodom. Lot had looked at Sodom, moved towards Sodom, and ended up living in Sodom. I want you to see there was a three-step process. And when I say that, I'm reminded of the chorus we sang when I was in little kids' church here. Oh, be careful, little lies, what you see. John warned us about the lust of the eye. Wanting coveting stuff. He looked. He began to move toward it. First he pitched his tent outside of the city, but he ends up living in the city. The city that was a wicked city. And it said the men were great sinners against the Lord. They weren't just your run-of-the-mill sinners. They get the word they were great sinners. Last Sunday morning, we talked about Lot making a choice, and we noted this. We are the sum of our choices. Decision-making determines who and what we are more than any other aspect of our lives. We are the sum of our choices. The irony of the story is Lot looking to gain more stuff, more prosperity, and now he is a prisoner of war with nothing. Never forget Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And then the psalmist changes when he goes to verse 4. The wicked are not so. And you can go read it. It does not end well for those who do not meditate and dwell in the Word of God. You see, choices have consequences. Choices have consequences. If we put Lot's story in the New Testament writings, I think he would fall into the category of one that Paul warned us about when he said in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be squeezed into the mold of this world. As he looked at the city, moved toward it, and then lived in it, it would appear that he and his family become more conformed to the way the wicked people were living rather than people of faith. He moved into the green pastures. Now he's a prisoner of war. Going back to the land that he had left originally when they came from the Chaldees as a prisoner of war. As he is going, he has no clue what is going to happen to him. His wife and his daughters, the things that they did and the things they still do in the Middle East to women, unspeakable. They're now prisoners of war. Because Peter was inspired centuries later to write that Lot was a righteous man whose soul was vexed daily by the lifestyle in Sodom, I have to believe that as he is being drug along, walking along, I happen to believe he must have been praying out to God. Oh, God, have mercy. God, have... And I'll bet it was a prayer like other people have prayed. God, if you get me out of this, I will... You ever tried to bargain with God? I will... I'll make you first in my life from now on. I'll never miss church again. I'll join the choir. I'll teach Sunday school. If you get me out of this, I'll change my ways. Perhaps verse 13 of Genesis 14 is because Lot was praying or because Abram was praying. Verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Somebody got away. And somehow they knew the connection between Lot and Abram, who was living by the Oaks of Mamre, the Ammonite, about 20 miles away from Sodom. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he said, it serves him right. No, it doesn't say that. When he had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He called together a staff of employees, employees who had been trained in the ways of war, because in those days you never knew when the spirit of Cain was going to rise up in some local feudal king, and he would try to wipe you out to get your stuff. And, and so they're prepared for battle. Abram is going to take his 318 men and travel over 100 miles, over 100 miles before they catch up with this army of five kings, or the army of four kings, and the five kings who've been taken captive. Now, I want to remind us of the story a little bit of Abram and Lot. Abram gave Lot the choice of real estate. He was going to take his family and business ventures to occupy this place. The way that Moses wrote the story, it seemed that the only logical conclusion 
we can come to is Lot made a decision based on what he thought was best for him. He did not defer to his older uncle, the one who had been called by Yahweh to possess this land. He was the one called to be made a great nation. God had promised Abram, I will make your name great. Lot did not build an altar that we can see or inquire of the Lord, which direction should I go? But in spite of Lot's treatment of his uncle, Abram made a choice to be magnanimous. He let him go the way he wants, and now when he's in trouble, because he moved toward a wicked city, we wouldn't find it hard to agree with Abram saying something like this, why should I help him? He didn't seem concerned about me a while back. He made that decision. Looked like to me he was only concerned about himself. He's selfish. It's about time he learned his lesson. He made his bed. Let him lie in it. That young man totally disrespected me. I mean, in, in the way of the culture of that day, he did. He should have said, oh, no, Uncle Abram, you go which way you want, and I'll take whatever way that you don't want. You, you go first. What I want to project to, project to you is this, that there was a war that Abram fought, and he won the battle, and it was within himself. Not every war is with guns, knives, swords, and fisticuffs. We all know something of the war that goes on in our hearts. Paul talked about one aspect of that war in Romans chapter 7 when he said, I don't want to do bad. I promise not to do bad. And I do bad anyway. I want to do good. I promise to do good and I don't do it. Who's going to deliver me, oh wretched man that I am? He referred to that propensity that we all have to not do the things that we know we should do. I want to project to you that Abram won the battle against anger. He won the battle against anger, against hurt. Now, I realize we have no record of him being angry with Lot when Lot chose to be what appeared the prime real estate. But how do we feel? How do we respond when someone takes from us what is rightfully ours? How do you feel? Ask Rick how he feels when he comes and finds the gas caps off of the vans again last night or the day before. Um, yeah, Friday night, Saturday morning. And they were nice enough to leave the caps hanging out so you knew that they'd taken our gas again. How do you feel? You can range from having hurt feelings to absolute anger that says, I want to get even, that can evolve into bitterness. From what we read in Genesis 14, it's obvious that Abram had made a choice concerning his nephew Lot. Abram had won the battle against anger by choosing to forgive. By choosing to forgive. He did not retaliate. He refused to demand his rights. He didn't demand an apology. Did Lot deserve forgiveness? Probably not. Did he deserve to have his uncle risk his life for him? Probably not. Lot made the choice to look to Sodom, to move towards Sodom, to move into Sodom. No altar that we read about. Nowhere do we read him, God, give me wisdom. Which way should I go? He's experiencing the consequences of his choices. But Abram chooses to forgive him and to pursue the army that has taken him to rescue him. How could he do that? 
because Abram chose to believe the promises of God. Abram chose to believe the promises of God. Whatever hurt, disappointment, anger may have been in his heart towards his nephew when he said, I'll take the green valley, water flowing through it. God took Abram a little further, a little higher place, and said, I want you to look to the north, to the south, to the west, and to the east. As far as you can see, wherever you plant your foot, that will be your inheritance. That will be your inheritance. By faith, Abram overcame his anger, his hurt, and any bitterness that could have come up in his soul. I love how God uses stories throughout the Scripture to illustrate principles that he gives to us to live by in the New Testament. For example, when we're thinking about Abram and his magnanimity towards his selfish nephew, remember Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. How much? Let it all be put away from you. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You be just as magnanimous as God has been magnanimous to you in giving to you grace. And you say, I don't feel like it. I got bad news for you. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that's a pretty heavy word. Pretty heavy word. Forgiveness is always the right choice. Matthew 18, Peter says to Jesus, how many times should I forgive my knucklehead brother? Seven times? Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And of course, he was using hyperbole. He wasn't telling you to get out your calculator or mark it on your calendar. And when you got to 491, wail the tar out of him. Then he told the story. Well, read Matthew 18 later today. Here's the reality. Unforgiveness hurts me more than the one I'm not forgiving. Unforgiveness hurts me more than the one I am not forgiving. The anger, the bitterness, the losing of your sleep. Very rarely does the other person even know that you're going through all of that. Many times they don't care. Unforgiveness will eat you up. What is the promise that we can embrace that enables us to release forgiveness in our hearts even to those who are out to destroy us? Here's the promise. There's nothing that can, anyone can do that will take away the promises that God has made to me. There's nothing that anyone can do that can separate me from the love of God. The promise is no weapon formed against me shall prosper. The promise is if God is for me, who can be against me? The promise is God will take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The promise is God will cause all things, the good, the bad, the ugly. He will cause all things to work together for my good that I might be more like Jesus Christ. That includes all the mean, nasty, hurtful things people can do to us. 
We can forgive others because that's God's plan. And God never wastes a hurt. I'm not saying we won't get hurt. But you know what? God never wastes a hurt. He will take that hurt and turn it into something good. And many times what that means is there's going to be somebody comes along and you're going to be able to say to them, you know what? When I went through that, I discovered God's grace was more than sufficient. Never forget the story of Joseph. We'll get to that much later in the book of Genesis. You remember his brothers hated him because his father spoiled him rotten. Favorite son, favorite coat, all of that stuff. They sold him, told daddy he got eaten by a lion. Sold him down, and then he ends up in Egypt and in Potiphar's house, and then he gets accused of something he didn't do and ends up in prison for 13 years. But by God's sovereignty, he turns something bad into something very good. And he becomes the, the man, the secretary of agriculture for the Egyptian empire. Charge of their food. Stacking up for seven years during the good times. And then during the seven years of famine, he's able to distribute food. And his brothers show up looking for food. And remember when he revealed himself, they thought we're dead. And he said, no, 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 no. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So he embraced them, weeping and wailing, embraced them. It's a beautiful story. But he believed the promises of God enabled him to give forgiveness God will work it out for our good. So much of what people do to us might not even be intentional. But even if it is intentional, we have this promise. God will work it out for our good. So when anger and hurt comes up, what do I do with it? I give it to Jesus. I give it to Jesus. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do not take vengeance. Vengeance is mine. Give up your right. Abraham, Abraham did not hold a grudge against his nephew. He rallied the troops to do it. Let's bring him back home. In her book, Unbroken, Laura Hildebrand tells the amazing story, the true story, of Louis Zamperini, a World War II veteran who became a prisoner of war. On May 27, 1943, Zamperini's bomber left Oahu in search of survivors from a downed plane. About 800 miles from the base, one of the engines cut out and the bomber plunged in the ocean. Zamperini and another soldier would stay afloat on a tiny life raft for 47 days, a world record for survival at sea at that particular time. After confronting sharks, starvation, dementia, the real battle would begin. Zamperini spent the next two years as a Japanese prisoner of war in the notorious Sugama prison. In particular, a guard, Watanabe, nicknamed the Bird, ensured that Lewis endured constant physical and torture and verbal humiliation, all in an attempt to shatter the spirit of American soldiers. In 1945, after Lewis had been declared, or Louis had been declared dead, he suddenly returns home to a rush of great publicity in America. Unfortunately, his life descended rather quickly into a self-made prison of alcoholism and bitterness. In particular, Louis Louis now endured constant nightmares about his past, and he had an obsessive drive to murder the bird. But that wall of addiction and hatred started to crumble when in 1949, Louis attended a Billy Graham crusade. He heard the gospel, and they sang, Just as I am, I'm sure. And he made his way to the front 
and trusted in Jesus Christ. From that point on, according to the author, what resonated with Louis was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make him. In a single moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness, all had fallen away. The morning he believed, he became a new creation. A year after trusting Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, Zemperini returned to the Sugama prison in Japan where he met some of his former captors, all except the bird. When Louis was told that the bird had committed suicide, he felt something he had never felt for his captor before. At that moment, something shifted sweetly inside of him. It was forgiveness, beautiful, effortless, and complete. For Louis Zamperini, the war was finally over. The war within you can be over as well. You don't have to hold your anger and bitterness any longer. Trust it to Christ. Give it to Jesus. Believe that God only wants what's best for you. And forgive those who hurt you. By faith, overcome the anger within. By faith, overcome the anger within. Back to Abram. Verse 15 of chapter 14. He divided his forces against them by night. And remember, he has 318 guys. And he's going against four kings and their armies. He divided his forces, and he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, another 20 miles. They'd already gone 100. Now they chased him for 20. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. An incredible story. An incredible story. It reminds me of the story of Gideon and the Midianites. Over 100,000 of them and 300 of the Israeli people, but they blew the trumpets, broke the jars, and, and uh, had the torches going, and chaos. God gave Abram the same kind of plan. Surprise them in the middle of the night and pursue them. By faith, Overcome fear within. By faith, overcome fear within. Abram shows us a different man in this story than when he went to Egypt. You remember when he went to Egypt? Um, Sarah, remember, we're brother and sister. Why? He was afraid. He was afraid they would kill him. So what possesses this man now to take 318 men against four armies? Do not let fear stop you from doing what you know God wants you to do. Do not let fear stop you from doing what you know God wants wants you to do. And the next note right on the heels of that is this. Believe God's promises and go forward with his will. Believe God's promises. You see, when he went to Egypt, he forgot the promise. He thought survival was up to him. But when he came back to the altar at Bethel, when he made the altar at Hebron, now he's focusing in on the promises of God. God promised him, I'll make your name great. God promised him, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. 
because he believed God's promise about who he was and who he's going to be, he went and he defeated the enemy. Over and over and over in the scripture, we are commanded, do not be afraid. Fear not. Trust God. In the 13th chapter of Hebrews, verses 5 and 6, the writer reminds us what the psalmist wrote in Psalms 118. In the latter part of verse 5, he says, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? You said, kill me. Well, is that really a bad thing? Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill your body. Fear the one who can put your soul in hell. Paul, encouraging younger Timothy in his ministry to the churches, tells him to fan the flame of the gift of God that was, you received by the laying on of hands. And then he said in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God gave us a spirit not of fear. So when fear comes, where did that spirit come from? Not from God, huh? I think about what happened to the men that Jesus called to be his disciples. The original 12, and then all of them were saved but one. Those, and there was that night that those 11, when they came to arrest Jesus, they all fled into the darkness. Now John and Peter followed in the distance and went to the, to the um, courtyard of the high priest. After the day of Pentecost, when they were together with a hundred plus people in the upper room, waiting for the power of the promise of the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts paints for us a picture of men and women who turned the world upside down because they were no longer living in fear. They were living in the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in the heart of every believer. So the next note is this. Do not let fear stop you from doing what you know God wants you to do. Do not let fear stop you from doing what you know God wants you to do. And the next note is, believe God's promise and go forward with his will. Do not let fear stop you from doing what you know God wants you to do. Believe God's promise and go forward with will. In 1933, the construction began on the famous Golden Gate Bridge. Ever driven over the Golden Gate Bridge? Pretty incredible. That suspension bridge, they got one tower right in the middle of the bay out there and they anchored in the ocean and then it's suspended from either side. The... Um, it was a job that brought a new standard of safety to the industry. Before that project, bridgemen were considered to be reckless daredevils who worked without safety precautions. Kind of like when my dad took me up on the drawbridge over the Calus River, and we just climbed up that ladder and walked the girders on top of there with not being tied off if OSHA saw that probably before Oshie even existed, I don't know. Joseph Strauss was this chief engineer for the Golden Gate Bridge. And he was insistent that the most extensive safety precautions be used by the crew building this bridge. To that date, the rule of thumb is for every million of dollars that it costs to build a bridge, there would be one person die, fall off and die. The Golden Gate in 1933 was going to cost $35 million. Now, that sounds like chump change today. But in 1933, that was in the midst of the Depression. And I remember my grandpa telling me that he worked for a quarter an hour in the 1930s at Longview Fiber. 
25 cents an hour. So if you kind of, 35 million was a whole lot of money, but what it meant is that there would probably be 35 guys who were going to fall off this bridge and into the bay. He was adamant, we're not going to let that happen. So he made sure they had all the latest safety equipment. They, they, because part of the problem was there was no shortage of people to work. Unemployment was 24 point something percent. So there was people looking. And so that meant you got a lot of people looking for jobs who'd never done any construction at all. Hard hats, respirator helmets, glare-resistant goggles, lotion for their skin were all mandatory. Safety lines were provided, and most of the workers tied themselves off. And if they were found breaking any one of those rules, they were fired on the spot. And there was a net under the whole bridge. Now, nets had been required before, but most of the time, nobody put them up. It was required, 60 foot underneath and 10 foot on each side. And uh, there were 19 men who fell into that net. None of them died. They boasted that they were part of the halfway to hell club. (laughs) There were 11 men who died. 10 of them died when a scaffolding collapsed, fell into the net and broke the net and went clear into the bay. There was one other guy that somehow managed to fall off the bridge and missed the net on both sides. Just, But one man died. According to one source, that net not only saved some lives, it freed many of the workers from the paralyzing fear of falling. Now, my dad tells about taking a couple guys to help him on top of the bridge, and one of them climbing up that straight, I mean, the straight up and down ladder froze. And his hands were on that, and he was not going to let go. And my dad had to literally pry his fingers and walk him down that ladder because paralyzed, literally, by the fear. But because these guys had a net, they were able to work faster without fear. We have a better safety net than that. Deuteronomy 33, 27 says this, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the next note is this. Do not let fear stop you from doing what you know God wants you to do. Do not let fear stop you from doing what you know God wants you to do. And believe God's promise and go forward with his will. Yes, that's the third time I've gave you the same point. In a mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing should be established. Do not let fear stop you from doing what you know God wants you to do. Abram conquered anger and hurt by faith in the promise. He conquered fear by faith in the promise. He went to battle and he brought back Lot and all the people and all the stuff. Final point I want to make for this morning ties us to the Christmas message. As Abram was to Lot, so is Jesus to you and me. As Abram was to Lot, so is Jesus to you and me. Jesus, the Son of God, creator of everything, sustainer of all the galaxies that we know about and the ones we don't know about. He did not sit on the throne and wait for you and me to be worthy of redemption. 
He did not wait for us to make ourselves holy or perfect. He didn't even wait for us to apologize or ask for forgiveness. Quite the contrary. While we were still sinners, Jesus, the Word, chose to become human flesh. We could not get to Him, so He came to us. The Scripture calls Him Emmanuel. The prophecy is He will be Emmanuel, God with us. The Christmas story is not the whole story. Thank God that he became as a baby, became as one of us. But if there was no Easter, if there was no cross, if there was no resurrection, he would just be another baby among the billions that had been born. Jesus was born to be crucified, to save us from death and hell. Jesus was born to be crucified, to save us from death and hell. And he said, the only way to be saved the only way is through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. He was born to shed perfect blood to wash away our sins. When Abram caught up with the four kings and ambushed them, won the battle, then Lot had a choice. A choice to return with Abram or to, you know, I really like being a POW. You say, how silly. The individuals who hear about Jesus Christ and choose not to receive him are saying, I want to be a POW on my way to eternal damnation. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Jesus wants everyone to go to heaven, but it's not automatic. He calls for choice to receive his grace, which he gave to us in a magnanimous spirit. In order to be saved, I must believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. I must believe in my heart that he is the Son of God, that he died for my sins and was raised from the dead. In order to be saved, I must commit my heart to follow after him. Have you been born again? If this is your last day, on planet earth and you stand before Jesus what will he say to you if he asks you why should I let you into heaven what will your answer be I'm a good person that's not it the answer is the only answer is because I put my faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for me on the cross. And I've asked you to forgive me of all of my sins and be the Lord of my life. And God in his magnanimity, his great favor will give grace to anyone who comes calling for it. Stand as we sing together, Amazing Grace.